Hello, I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Jarvis. Welcome to the Hepcast, the podcast shining a light on the real life stories behind the fight against hepatitis C. In this, our seventh and sadly last episode of the series, we'll be discussing the elimination of viral hepatitis. We have just under a decade to go until the World Health Organization's 2030 target to eliminate viral hepatitis. And I'm joined today by four truly remarkable guests who are right at the forefront of the global movement to eliminate this disease. We'll hear the stories that mobilized our guests to play their part in achieving those targets. And we'll explore whether we're on track and what more needs to be done to achieve elimination. Speaking of those guests, Charles Gore is the executive director of the Medicines Patent Pool, a UN-backed organization aiming to increase access to and facilitate development of medicines for low- and middle-income countries. Charles has worked extensively with the WHO and with other infectious diseases programs in HIV and tuberculosis. Homi Razavi is the founder and managing director of the Center for Disease Analysis Foundation, CDAF, which aims to accelerate the elimination of viral hepatitis using epidemiological data modeling. Su Wang is the president of the World Hepatitis Alliance and the medical director at the Center for Asian Health at St. Barnabas Medical Center in New Jersey. Sue is, I'm delighted to report, a fellow primary care physician, and she's involved in the screening and linking to care of at-risk populations for both hepatitis B and hepatitis C. John Ward is the director of the Coalition for Global Hepatitis Elimination at the Task Force for Global Health. He was the CDC director of the Division of Viral Hepatitis, where he was responsible for viral hepatitis surveillance, prevention, and research. Gosh, where to begin? I'm going to start with you, Charles, if I may. After you were diagnosed with hepatitis C, you became a really fierce advocate, both in the UK and internationally. Can you tell me what first motivated you to speak out? I think it was how neglected hepatitis C was, not just hepatitis C, but therefore people living with hepatitis C. And obviously I compared it to the amount of attention that HIV got. And it just seemed, yes, really unfair that people with hepatitis C were sidelined. And then on top of that, in the UK, hepatitis C disproportionately affects a lot of marginalized groups, people in prison, people who inject drugs, immigrant communities. And it really felt that they had no voice and I fell into this job of trying to be that voice. So it's a mixture of those two things, a really neglected disease and a group of people who perhaps didn't really have a voice. It's really interesting you say that because, of course, we've had the privilege during this series of speaking to people from a lot of marginalized populations. There's this wall of silence because of the stigma. Yes, it does keep people really quiet. And that's just not fair because then they don't get access to what they need. Well, you are not a man who's prepared to keep quiet. And it's great news for so many people that you didn't, because, of course, you co-founded the Hepatitis C Trust following your diagnosis. And, of course, you've been very heavily involved in the European Liver Patients Association. Tell us a bit about that. I'll just start with the Hepatitis C Trust. There were four of us all together with hepatitis C. And what we felt 
was that there was no real support or information for people with hepatitis C in the UK. And it turned out there wasn't a single charity looking after people. There were more than 500 HIV charities, not a single one for hepatitis C, although there's three times as many people with hepatitis C. And that's why we formed it. And I was only expecting to be a trustee, maybe turn up for four meetings a year, and then finding that the others got me in a corner one day and said, you do understand you'll have to run it when we've set this up. And I was really surprised, and I guess I got bullied into it. And similarly, with the European Liver Patients Association, we had this idea that it might be useful to get patient groups from around Europe together to share experiences. And through a variety of mishaps, I guess, I ended up being asked to be the president of it when it was formed. I found myself doing things that I hadn't expected. I'm getting the feeling you're being extremely modest here. And what's more, I heard in the most glowing terms from Rachel Halford about your achievements in one of our previous episodes, looking specifically at the UK. Now, Sue, of course, you are now at the World Hepatitis Alliance. So tell us about your role there. It's interesting because I'm a physician and I had been diagnosed in college with hepatitis B when I was donating blood. But it wasn't until I started doing work in the Asian population in New York City at a community health center when I just started taking care of a lot of people with hepatitis B infection and really just got immersed in the care of hepatitis B patients within primary care and really started advocating for more attention. And I met John Ward through that. It was definitely easier wearing the physician hat and talking about programs and talking about work and what we could do for the patients. It was very different talking about it as a patient, being vulnerable and also feeling like, what do I say as a patient? I really realized that, you know, patients are the ones that people hear and listen to, that the data and the statistics only go so far. And I didn't set out to do work in HEPI or HEPC, it just fell on my lap. And then now kind of understanding that it's actually my role as a physician that gives me a voice. I haven't faced a lot of the discrimination or stigma as a lot of the patients. And as I was on the board and hearing other stories, the terrible discrimination and people just really feeling like they had nowhere else to go. They had nobody to talk to. They felt so alone. And the more stories that I hear of that, I just feel like you're, there's a real need here for people to be a voice for people who otherwise can't be a voice. So I do attribute a lot of where I am now to being involved with the Alliance. And I think we need more organizations like this. We need to get more patients really involved and really to step up to be a more massive voice for advocacy to get to elimination as we're here to talk about today. Well, you can't be a lot more involved than being the president. John, is that the way you remember your meeting with her? Because of course, you're now working with hepatitis elimination yourself. I met Sue, as she described uh, some years ago, and working with the CDC Foundation, we were doing a um, public awareness campaign and that Sue was a, a part of. I worked at CDC for about 35 years and really moved, came to CDC in 1984 to work on hepatitis. I had become interested in it as a young doctor. But when I arrived, the hepatitis program was very small and they did not have an opening, but there was a opening in the AIDS program that was just starting. And so I got hired there, and I was really, in retrospect, I was the third physician hired by CDC to work on the AIDS epidemic, just to show you how small it was. And I really saw how a public health problem and a response to it 
could turn from a trickle into a wave, into a tsunami of a response, which is what we know is the AIDS response today. And so I really grew up, that was my ex experience in public health and the importance of the data, the importance of the clinical response, the importance of research, the importance of civil society, and then all of that coming together to move the mountains of political commitment that created a, a large response in the U.S. and then around the world. And that's really how I think public health gets things done. So when I had an opportunity to lead the Division of Viral Hepatitis about 15 years ago now, I really saw how could we bring all of those elements of that effective HIV response into hepatitis? Because unlike HIV, we have a vaccine that can prevent transmission of hepatitis B. We now have cures that can cure people of hepatitis C. So we have powerful interventions, and now it's up to us to put those all together and really accomplish these elimination goals that have been set before us. Homie, John's just referred there to data and the fact that knowledge is power. Can you tell us a little bit first about what motivated you to engage with viral hepatitis elimination? Oh, absolutely, Sarah, and thank you for the invitation to be here. And the reason that I'm standing here today is, is actually because of Charles. So in 2012, I had a very successful management consulting company. We were doing analysis of 40 different diseases, and Charles and I were sitting side by side in, uh, in Thailand. And, and he approaches me, and remember, this is long before the, the new therapies were actually available. And so he approaches and he says, I, I got to ask you a question. Do you think elimination of viral hepatitis is possible? And so, well, look, I think we can look into that. And so we started developing a model. And by 2012, we were able to show that, in fact, it's quite feasible. Rang up Charles and said, I know you asked me this question, but I, I actually think this is doable. If you have therapies that have higher efficacy, it can be done. And that's really what got me excited. And so I actually ended up leaving the management consulting company, transferring the you know, outsourcing or, or taking out, actually spinning out the Center for Disease Analysis as a separate organization with the focus on viral hepatitis because of all the diseases that uh, we ever analyzed. And this is over 50 different diseases, including diabetes, cancer, Viral hepatitis is the only one I know that can be eliminated in our lifetime, given the tools we have today. So as John mentioned, we have all the tools available. Yeah, it's been an exciting roller coaster since. So just tell me a little bit more, if you would, Hermie, about the services that the Center for Disease Analysis Foundation provides. We really are a decision support organization. We're a facilitator. And our role is, as you mentioned earlier, that data is power. So we sit down with individual countries, we collect the available data, and then we analyze that data for them. But more important, then we start looking at different scenarios. So what if they did achieve the WHO elimination target? How many lives will be saved? How much will the quality of the population actually increase? The life expectancy would increase. And then we also do the assessment for how much it would cost. I think initially a lot of countries were really worried that this will cost a lot of money over a long time, and, and it will take decades before they see a return. 
And what we were able to show is in case of hepatitis, uh, hepatitis C, in fact, you can see the results in 10 years. You can actually recover your investment within 10 years, which is very rare in the healthcare setting, actually. With hepatitis B, it takes a little longer. It takes about 15 years before you see those positive return on investment. And that's what convinced a lot of countries to actually take the initial jump into it and start really start massive screening and massive treatment. We often recognize that just by the nature of the disease, hepatitis is underappreciated. It's such a silent killer where people are infected for years and years. And then the liver is a very stoic organ. It really keeps on performing until it can't anymore. And then you really have rapid decline in health. And unfortunately, you can develop liver cancer and then and with a very high mortality. And so that's one this awareness and early screening. So you can, if you're infected, get the care and treatment you need is so important. That's what we're all uh, pulling toward. And we have vaccines that if you give early enough in life, you can prevent chronic hepatitis B. And then those children don't have a one in four chance of developing liver cancer in later life because these health benefits are just profound for the millions who are either at risk for or living with hepatitis. Just with hepatitis C alone, if we accomplish these goals in the next 10 years, we can prevent one and a half million deaths from hepatitis. And it's just a remarkable goal that I felt passionate about at CDC and, and I wanted to move on from CDC to develop a coalition where bringing together all the partners so we can continue to share lessons learned, provide a platform to do that more on an everyday basis and really provide assistance and raise a, while raising awareness of what everyone can do to help us uh, reach these goals for these millions at risk for our living with hepatitis. Sarah, I don't know if your listeners realize, and this is an important point that John brought up, every 30 seconds, somebody dies of hepatitis B or C globally. This is a deadly disease that's just not known to a lot of us. COVID just hit that number, actually. But this is year after year. Every 30 seconds, somebody dies of either hepatitis B or C. And yet, as you say, hepatitis C is curable, and there is a vaccination, an effective vaccination for hepatitis B. I think Interestingly, what I've really had brought home to me, and I've heard this from patients, but much more since I've had the privilege of working on these podcasts, is that people who have hepatitis C, actually, they may not have acute symptoms, but they just feel ill. But that's true of patients I've spoken to. They're like, you know, I thought I was just getting older. You know, I thought I was just getting fatigued and feeling out of sorts and even feeling depressed. And then I got cured and all of a sudden I realized what was really causing my bad health. And you realize hepatitis C is attacking the liver. It's also a chronic inflammatory disease. And so it's affecting just your general metabolism as well. So I know you feel passionately about hepatitis B. I know you've been working to try and alleviate the stigma around hepatitis B. How do you think that compares to the stigma that people with hep C face? I think there is stigma, I think, at least, you know, in the U.S. and in a lot of, of the world, it's with people who have immigrated from another country where the burden is high. So like Asia and Africa. So any of the immigrants who are from those areas 
and also the Caribbean and the indigenous population. There are pockets everywhere, but it may not be obvious like in the U.S. where the overall national prevalence is fairly low, like at 0.3 to 0.4%. But when you look at some of these communities, it can be 5% to almost 20, 30% in some communities. And so it often gets overlooked easily. You know, with both hep B and hep C, it's not casually transmitted. It has to be through blood yet there's still this great fear. So the kind of stigma and discrimination you hear coming out of Asia and Africa and and in communities all over are that people often feel like they have to segregate themselves from others, Uh, maybe within their own family. They may not eat at the same dinner table as everybody else. They're very cautious about sharing any kind of, any kind of like in Asia, we like to use a, a common a spoon or something to serve from the central plate. And that's something that somebody would potentially avoid needlessly. They don't need to do it, but it's a common practice. Or at certain work sites, they may have a separate table for people who have hepatitis B. At lunch, you may not be able to pursue a healthcare education if you have hep B. You may not be able to get a work visa if you have hepatitis B. So it can completely alter your life, if you can imagine. And you just hear people's course of life, they end up feeling abandoned by family or get divorced or feeling like they have to have an abortion and committing suicide. You hear lots of really tragic stories. And I think it's just overall, there's not a huge awareness. I would say for hep B, like the communities compared to hep C are less vocal overall. And maybe because immigrant communities are often just really trying to survive and do their work and don't really are, are not asking for a lot of additional attention sometimes. And so aren't going to policymakers to demand more research or care or services. I think that plays into it as well. I do feel like the community needs to to rise up and, and have more of a voice because it, there is such a heavy burden. I was really interested to hear you say that you've had, I don't know, more of a platform for your voice as a result of being both a physician and a patient. But What about physicians who aren't patients? Can you talk to us about the value and role that physicians play in hepatitis B awareness and indeed in hep C elimination and advocacy? Sure. I mean, I think physicians are often their patients' biggest advocates. And oftentimes when we are talking to other advocates, they always say, oh, they don't listen to us. Like people don't listen to civil society. I can't get a hold of the minister of health. But if there was a physician right by my side, they would take heed. They would say, they would invite you to speak. But I think really it's the partnership. You really need the partnership of the professionals, the physicians and the patients to really share their um, personal story. And we talk about elimination. Really the first step is screening. Just as John had said, is there's, and everybody else is just saying, we know that there's so many people who have not been identified For hep B, we think it's only 9% globally who have been diagnosed. And so a lot of it is physicians being aware and just screening people. I think we need to just say, I'm going to treat the person and not just frame them in certain ways. I think there's been more of a movement to just say, what, we just need to do what's right for the patient. And what's right for this patient is to screen them for HIV, hep A, hep B, hep C. I'm doing a liver cancer screen. I'm doing infectious disease screen. So I think a lot of how we say things and how we frame things is really important for getting patients the services that they need. We have a huge role in normalizing these things. And then I think there's less stigma and discrimination all around uh, when patients are identified. So that's how we start small. And then we broaden that. Charles, you started in the UK and then you moved to Europe. And then, of course, you were a founder member of the World Hepatitis Alliance. Yes. I have to say that, that whereas starting the Hep C Trust and the European Liver Patients Association was something I fell into. The World Hepatitis Alliance was a little more premeditated because when I stepped down after doing my two-year stint as president of the European Liver Patients Association, the one thing I really felt I'd failed on was doing something around global awareness. I still felt 
that at an international level, hepatitis and consequently people with hepatitis were being ignored. So it occurred to me that I'd met a lot of patient groups. So I wrote to them, all the ones I knew, and I said, could you appoint a group, someone from a group in your geographic area to come to a meeting that I'll put on and we'll discuss if we want to do something about hepatitis at a global level. And so we had these sort of seven or eight people from around the world. And I said to them, okay, look, we don't seem to be getting anywhere about putting hepatitis on the global agenda. Do you want to do something? And literally within 20 minutes, we had decided, yes, we want a World Hepatitis Day. That's what will get some awareness around. Having agreed to this, I was like, well, that's great. So do you want to go away and do it? And they turned to me and said, no, somebody's got to organize it. So could you organize it? <laughs> so we set up the World Hepatitis Alliance to run World Hepatitis Day. The patient groups from around the world came back to me and said, look, we can't get our governments involved. So we don't really have a lot of traction here. And the excuse that the governments are using are that it's not an official day. So I thought, let's make it an official day. How hard can that be? You see, again, there's a, a great advantage to being incredibly <laughs> naive and, and ill-informed when it comes to things like that. So I thought we need the World Health Organization to make it an official day. So I got hold of somebody there who said, oh, yes, no, all you need to do is get some countries to put it on the agenda and then get a resolution to establish it and get 194 countries to agree to it. It's fine. No problem at all. So I just wrote to 194. Well, actually, it was 193 at the time and said, will you do something about this? Because there is nowhere in global health where the difference between the burden of the disease, the number of people infected, the mortality, etc., and the level of awareness, which is so incredibly low, is so big. And four countries came forward and agreed and put it on the agenda and drafted a resolution to establish World Hepatitis Day, which was a pretty an amazing achievement in some respects, because at the time there were only six official health days that the World Health Organization had. They had three disease-specific days, World AIDS Day, World TB Day, and World Malaria Day. And one of my personal ambitions always, and I know that in fact, everyone on this call shares this, has been to elevate viral hepatitis to the same level as HIV, TB, and malaria, because it's the other big infectious disease. And what I really think it meant is that countries knew that hepatitis is a big problem, but they'd been looking the other way for a long time, and they'd been allowed to do that. And suddenly it was there in front of them, and they kind of had to respond. I'm thinking not on your watch, but of course not on John's either. Gosh, what a combination you four are. I'm going to ask you specifically, John, if I may, what services the Coalition for Global Health uh, Hepatitis Elimination provides and, and how you tailor and deliver those services between communities and between at different scales? I think all of us have been striving to fill the gaps in a global hepatitis movement. And Homi, on, particularly on data, and Sue extending the work that Charles started. 
and then for myself, really seeing that there wasn't really, in contrast to other global disease elimination movements, there wasn't really a home for the movement where partners could connect and know who was working on what, where, what type of information was available that could help a program get started or improve what they're doing to really promote peer-to-peer collaboration and a sense of community so that people really felt connected as part of a a global movement. So it's really was in that spirit that I thought the capacity of building could be applied to coalition that could bring forward the civil society or community represented by the World Hepatitis Alliance and a lot of clinical organizations that are involved in hepatitis. My background in public health, I could bring forward the ministries of health and have that perspective and really help that connectivity. So the coalition works to connect these different organizations together in a community of practice where they are sharing and helping each other. We provide information from over 191 countries, some of that provided by Homie and and his work. And then we provide technical assistance to individual countries to help them plan elimination programs, evaluate their information to assess where would interventions need to be most effectively implemented. And then we do research, which is a very important part of disease elimination. You should always be in this mindset of continued quality improvement on like what strategies are needed to really deliver a vaccine more effectively or test a population more quickly, improve access to care, and even test out new technologies that could be applied. Now, speaking of new technologies, how do you think scientific innovation has aided this movement? Because it's quite clear that you started with a seed of an idea. It's reached a great groundswell. And now the WHO is looking at elimination globally for hepatitis C by 2030. How has science helped? I mean, it was just a ringing reason by the Nobel Prize for Medicine and Physiology being awarded to the three scientists who discovered hepatitis C virus back in 1989. It's a landmark achievement in medicine. They discovered this new pathogen, which prior was known as non-A, non-B hepatitis, and they made the uh, reliable test that we use every day now possible, and that led to the cures that became all oral therapies, so that it really started a, a cascade. And these therapies for hepatitis C are really the first time in the history of medicine that you could cure a chronic viral infection. So this is, these are huge technological breakthroughs for medicine that we need to capitalize on. It's not, you know, it's not, science is not an end of itself. It should be a means to an end. In this case, we should be eliminating hepatitis with these cures. Uh, I don't believe anyone in the very, very near future should be dying of hepatitis C. Right now, we have over 500,000 people dying of hepatitis C. I feel like it's someday we're going to get that to zero. Charles, you have had vast experience, I think it's fair to say, working directly with governments, advising on national elimination strategies. What are the most effective ways to engage policymakers? How do you grab their attention? That's a difficult question. I think probably, like all of us, politicians respond to a bit of carrot and stick. I think it's different from, you know, country to country, but I still think that's a pretty good overall way of thinking about it. And 
in terms of stick, there are things like comparisons with other countries. In the very early days, I used that a lot in the UK. I would compare Scotland, which was doing much better in terms of hepatitis C than England. This applies all over the world. Almost anywhere you go in the world, there's one country that is, has a big rivalry with some next door country. And if you can show that the next door country are doing better, it's, it helps. But it's also about praising countries for the things they are doing well and giving them an opportunity to showcase that. Of course, it's also about offering goals in the future where they can see that, for example, oh, yes, we could eliminate hepatitis C in the next two years in this particular population. That would be a real achievement that I, as a politician, could claim to have done. So it's thinking about these kind of things. But it may be, for example, in Mongolia, it was about talking to them about how they could finance their hepatitis program. They were absolutely keen to do it because they have such high rates of liver cancer, largely as a result of viral hepatitis. And but they wanted to know how to do it. So we went to them and said, look, we've got all these ideas and we laid them out and said, you could choose some of these that might work for you. So it very much depends on who you're talking to. But again, if you use that approach of, you can get something out of this as a politician, I think that's really useful. So as Charles pointed out, the countries need data in order to first be able to compare against other countries and also to see their overall impact. And the Polaris Observatory was really created to track data and see the country's performance against our goals. And, and as part of that, of course, what we do is we sit down with the stakeholders in each country. Now, outside of the high-income countries, there is a perception that there's not a lot of data available, in fact. And so the, the policymakers' response is, we can't do anything about it because we don't know how big this is. And what we found is, in fact, every country has a lot more data than realize. Give you an example. So we were in Saudi Arabia, and they haven't done a national survey. So they really didn't have an estimate. You know, we were asking, do you guys do any screening for military recruits? Yeah, we do that. So we said, all right, but that's only young men. Any other surveys? They're like, we do premarital testing. So anyone who gets tested for hepatitis B and C. How many people do you have in that database? About four and a half million. Lots well, of pretty massive database. And so, you know, part of this exercise is to just help, for, you know, countries to think through of what's available, bring it to the table, and then help them analyze that. And, and that's a key service that the, the Polaris Observatory provides. So I'm going to come to you because we've talked a lot about hepatitis C elimination, these really big goals. But on an individual basis, healthcare professionals, I think it's fair to say in the UK and probably everywhere else in the world, are pretty busy. So how can we support healthcare professionals to understand the value of elimination and not just see hep C treatment as business as usual? This is a great question. I think there's so much in terms of changing physician behavior. Casting that vision of elimination actually really helps motivate them to say that it's doable. We have the tools and it helps obviously that I have been doing this too. So I, and while I will tell people that I only started doing hep C and treating hep C recently, 
And but it's doable. And it's so satisfying. And I say, how often can you cure a disease in a short amount of time, just a couple of weeks, eight to 12 weeks, you can cure somebody of a chronic disease and totally alter their course in terms of getting liver cancer or cirrhosis. And a couple of other doctors who have started to do it also, just incredibly satisfying. I think what you need is though you need, they need support. Everybody feels like, oh, I'm a little nervous about doing it. I need somebody I can ask questions to. There are programs like the ECHO program that have really helped to train up a, a number of generalists to do more. For hep C, we're focused on cure. For hep B, we talk about the vaccine. We've had this pediatric vaccine and birth dose, and we have interventions where we shouldn't be seeing, at least in the U.S., a thousand babies born a year with hepatitis B. I think if it was HIV, people would be in shock and there would be all this media attention and coverage over it. But we let these babies get infected and they have to carry the infection for life and have an increased uh, risk of dying from liver cancer. And as a mom, I just can't imagine this is a vaccine that costs 20 cents and governments won't step up. Outside funding agencies and humanitarian agencies won't step up. I think it is important to get physicians out of their like day to day and help them realize that they're part of a much bigger movement. I mean, it's actually very helpful for fighting physician burnout to inspire them with lofty goals like this. I think to add on to that, once you increase their awareness, you really got to recognize, yes, they are very busy in taking care of patients. So how can you help them deliver hepatitis testing and treatment? So I think we really focus very hard on how can you simplify testing and treatment? So for example, over time, we've shown that and laboratories have adopted that you, know, you need a two-test process to diagnose hepatitis C. Laboratories now, when that first test is positive, rather than asking the doctor to order a test a second time, they just go ahead and automatically run that second test. So that's one less thing that the doctor has to worry about. And then secondly, these uh, for hepatitis C therapies, over time, we've shown that you don't need as close monitoring as we once thought when they first came out. And so now much fewer, maybe even just seeing the patient to confirm their diagnosis, provide them the medications, and then have a second visit to document their cure, which happens in about over 90% of the time. And so it's a much simpler process than what was the case just six years ago. And I think there's a variety of strategies that can be implemented by physicians around the world. So that's one of the functions of our coalition is to bring those together. I keep referencing physicians, but also the simplification recognizes that other healthcare providers, such as pharmacists and, and nurses, can also be managing hepatitis care, which is just another way of expanding access and simplifying the care and treatment process to make physicians more available to be part of this elimination effort. So I'd like to ask why we're focusing on elimination of viral hepatitis and not eradication? Eradication, which we've done with only one disease in the world, smallpox, means that once you get all the are able to get all the cases down to zero, you have eliminated. That's it's gone and you don't need to continue maintaining it. Whereas elimination has the understanding we're all, we're eliminating hepatitis as a public health threat trying to get the cases down to zero as much with the understanding that we do need to continue ongoing maintenance in terms of screening, vaccination, and it won't be eradicated completely from the globe like smallpox has. That's my understanding. I'm happy to hear others talk about because I know within WHO, they're very clear definitions, and I'm sure it was a bit of a discussion to get to that as well. 
No, I agree. Elimination can be the first step toward eradication. Elimination, as Sue mentions, does require some ongoing prevention measures like ongoing vaccination, et cetera. But perhaps further down the road, we can actually think about eradication goals for hepatitis viruses because they, they don't live in the environment very long. They don't live in other animals. They need humans to survive. And so the more and more prevention and cure you have, the fewer humans are harboring this can be sources of transmission to others. So I, I think elimination is a step toward eradication in the future. Interestingly, the reason I asked Homi that question about elimination in Bangkok in 2011, actually, I think, was because in 2010, when we the World Health Assembly was about to debate whether they would establish uh, World Hepatitis Day as an official day, I arrived at the WHO headquarters and they were just getting ready a statue for unveiling. And the statue is of a nurse kneeling beside a child, giving them an injection. And in fact, uh, as Sue said, it was to commemorate 30 years since the eradication of smallpox. The one standout thing that we've done in public health as a globe. And I looked at that and I thought, we need a statue for hepatitis. We need to be ambitious. Okay, we'll start with elimination, but yes, that's what it's about. <laughs> so, Homie, you're the man with the data. What progress have we made towards the elimination of viral hepatitis? Are we on track for that 2030 target? Some countries are. So we estimate that there are currently about 10 to 11 countries who are on track to achieve the hepatitis C targets. For hepatitis B, the list of countries who have reduced mother-to-child transmission is quite long. In fact, vaccination programs have been incredibly successful. And in fact, we're now seeing the secondary effect of vaccination, which is mothers today who are given birth are very often were vaccinated as infants themselves. So 18, 20, 25-year-olds were vaccinated as infants. And see, we, we're seeing a fairly dramatic drop actually in mother-to-child transmission because of the historical vaccination. We need to recognize that success. With hepatitis B mortality and deaths in liver cancer, not so good. So in, in fact, we estimate that none of the countries are on track to achieve that. And that's mainly because of the, the fact that not enough patients are being treated for hepatitis B infection. Charles? Some positive, some negative news there from Homi. How useful are the elimination targets and indeed how understandable are they? That's a good question too. I think they're extremely useful advocacy tools. We have to be able to hold countries to account. The targets uh, that we have are a little bit tricky because they are essentially the impact targets are percentage reductions. And countries from a baseline in 2015. And if you didn't happen to have measured your mortality or your new cases in 2015, you can't then measure a reduction against it. So I think there may be some refinement of that as we go forward to make it more easily understandable for countries. If countries can show progress and see progress, they could be congratulated for progress. And what I was talking about earlier, this carrot, it's really important. Looking at the decade ahead, what do you think are the key barriers we're going to need to overcome to achieve the 2030 elimination goals? And, and what should we do to address those? 
The real problem at the moment in hepatitis, above everything else, is testing and treatment. We are simply not testing enough people and we are not treating enough people. The problem is in some countries where these are, particularly in Asia and Africa, where the numbers are enormous, you're having to think about testing enormous numbers because for everyone you find, you've probably got to test at least 10 people. And if you have 100 million people in China with hepatitis B, that means you're going to have to test a billion people. That's a very big undertaking. But interestingly, COVID has shown that countries can do mass testing if they're incentivized to do it for one reason or another. A lot of it now will be about how smart we can be, because one of the key things about hepatitis is that it's not had the funding, the external funding that HIV, TB, or malaria have had. So the funding for hepatitis has to come from countries' own domestic uh, resources. But they've got to think about if we were going to test a lot of people for hepatitis, could we combine it with other things and, and deal with a lot of health issues at the same time for not much more money? And so in Egypt, where they had this mass screening program, they also tested for blood sugar because diabetes is a big problem. So we've got to think like that. We've got to be smart because there isn't an enormous amount of money. The reason that I'm now involved in this thing called the Hepatitis Fund is to try and raise money externally, at least to do some pilot projects that would really help countries set them on their path to doing things because of this lack of money. So maybe if we don't have the big money, we could just do with some catalytic funding that could make some changes. What sets apart those countries that are on track to achieve elimination compared to the ones who aren't? And how can we share best practice to get everybody on board? Yeah, I believe even though not every country is on track, we've made tremendous progress since these goals were put out just five years ago. And working in the US government for 35 years, I know that it takes time for governments to move and change. And I believe we've actually had remarkable progress. For example, Egypt, they ended up testing like 40 million people within less than a year, found over 2 million infected persons and, and achieved a, a cure rate of 98% and, and has dramatically declined in their prevalence and declined in their mortality in the coming years. And now they're asking to be verified as achieving these elimination goals. So progress is being made. It just takes a while to get that global momentum up. And I think thanks to uh, people, we are progressively uh, knocking down the barriers and really creating a, a global momentum toward these 2030 goals. And we just need to uh, stick to the task. So I'm gonna ask, the rest of you, because you've given us a beautiful summary of that, John. Sue, President of the World Hepatitis Alliance, how confident do you feel about being able to eliminate viral hepatitis? I think we can do it. We have all the tools. We really do need the commitments. And I agree, it may not be right at 20, or some countries are really aiming to get it even done before 2030. So I think we'll have a, a cohort of countries that are ambitious and do it. And I think that will actually propel it too when other countries see that it's doable. So I think it's going to happen geographically in different areas, and hopefully we'll be able to get everybody on board with enough of the commitment. But it will, it's not going to happen by itself. I think it's going to take a lot of hard work to get us there. 
I'm very confident. Whether we'll quite do it by 2030, I'm not entirely certain. But I don't think that matters. If we're close enough, that'll be fine for me. As long as the commitment is there and we see real progress. We're not talking about complete elimination. We're talking about elimination as a public health threat. I think we'll be super close to that. And that will be a major achievement. And in fact, it's going to be ironic because I spent quite a lot of my life trying to raise awareness of hepatitis. And yet what I'm trying to do now is to make it so rare that people don't need to be aware of it. I fully agree with Charles. I am very confident that we will achieve the elimination targets. may not be by 2030, but in our lifetime, we will see elimination of hepatitis B and C. What we've seen in these programs, it takes a while to get the momentum. But once the momentum is built, you see a domino effect where country after country starts endorsing. We saw that with malaria. We've seen a lot of other diseases. We're just trying to build that momentum, and we are going to get there. I am quite confident. Fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, gosh, what a climax to an amazing series. Thank you, Sue, Charles, John, and Homie for sharing your stories, for educating us on the elimination movement, and of course, what we can do to overcome remaining challenges over the next decade. I think that was a great place to end. We will get there. Yes, it might not quite be 2030, but we will get there. And listening to you, I absolutely believe you. Your inspirational stories, the work you've undertaken, they really have been a force for change for the millions of people who are living with viral hepatitis. And what's clear to me from our discussions today is that we can certainly look towards the future with optimism and to hope. Now, of course, I want to thank you, our audience, for joining us throughout this series and listening to these moving stories from the hepatitis community. From engagement to testing, and now finally to elimination, it's been a privilege to hear firsthand the voices behind this global fight and how we can come together to eliminate this disease. The Hepcast is a collaboration between the World Hepatitis Alliance and Gilead Sciences Europe Limited. The Hepcast is fully funded by Gilead Sciences Europe Limited.